open your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 15, and we're looking at the S-word and the ultimate goal of history. The S-word is submission. The ultimate goal of history, is Jesus is going to submit all things to Himself, and then once all things are submitted to Him, He's going to submit Himself and all things to the Father, and God is going to be all in all. We've been looking at 1 Corinthians 15. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 20-28. We've been looking at for the last two weeks. The first thing we saw was basically that, that submission is the ultimate goal of all of history. All things being submitted to God. I know that's not popular, that's why it's the S word, but it's the essence of who we are, it's the essence of who Jesus Christ was, and it's a character and an attribute that we ought to be cultivating in our own lives, in the lives of our kids, and in, in just anticipating and rejoicing that indeed God is our Lord, He's our King, Jesus is our King. Last week we saw the first fruits of, and the ultimate goal of history. And we saw that in this passage, 1 Corinthians 15, 20-28, first fruits is used two times as a metaphor and a picture how the resurrection of the man God, Jesus Christ, set in motion and guarantees that resurrections will get us to the end that God intends. What he started in the past is guaranteed to happen in the future, and that's what's going to happen. Death will have to submit to God, and all things will be resurrected, and all things will be restored. Some to salvation, some to judgment. Well, today, I want to take, I want to address the aspect that each in their own order. If you look at verse 23, he says, in, well, pick it up in verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will may, be made alive. But, but how is that going to happen? Each in his own order. First Christ, which happened over 2,000 years ago, and then there's going to come more resurrections. I want you to show that, uh, show that to you. Um, this passage, 20 through 28, is a big picture overview of God's plan. And so let me just give you a very simple outline of this passage that we've been looking at. And this is just, this is what everybody can agree on. Everybody that is a believer can agree on these four points of this big picture overview. But how the details are worked out, I'm going to show you three views, three major views. And so let's look at the big picture overview and we're just going to survey this. First of all, how is God's plan being fulfilled for the ultimate goal of history? He's doing it through a human person. We saw that in verses uh, uh, 21 through 22. He's doing it through a per- her- uh, human person who also happens to be God. What, man, what the man Adam did, a man must undo. And that's what Jesus is doing. Adam brought sin and death into the world, and Jesus... The man God is going to bring life and resurrection into the world. And because he is the sinless man and the saving God, he's able to not only undo what Adam did, but he's going to do more than Adam can do. He's going to not just, it's not just paradise lost and paradise regained. It's something better. It's a new creation with a new humanity and a new heavens and a new earth. Secondly, he's doing it through an orderly process. He's doing it through an orderly process. We see this in 23 and 24. Each in his own order. First Christ, then believers. We don't know yet whether those believers are all believers, Old Testament and new, or just the church, but we know 
at least at this point, it's, it's believers. And then the end. But we're going to talk more about that. The question is, or, or I, I, I think the point I want you to see here, and we talked about it a little bit last week, he's using the harvest. And when you harvest, uh, when you plant a crop, you plant it, you know, you'll plant a crop here, and then you'll later plant a crop here, and then you'll plant a crop here. And basically, uh, the timing of the harvest will be staggered. Okay, this crop will come in, you get the first fruits, and then this crop will come in, and then this crop will come in. And farmers stagger that so that if something happens to one crop, you've got that other crop, you know, okay, that crop's up and it got rained on and hailed on, but this other crop is just now coming up and it wasn't destroyed. So you have the staggered, the staggered process. So the question we want to ask about this passage today is, are all the resurrections mentioned in this passage? And if not, what other resurrections are going to happen? Third thing I want you to see, he's doing it with resurrection power. He's doing it with resurrection power. No matter what, how you view eschatology or the end times, no matter how you view this world's going to come to, the, to an end, uh, we know that it's going to happen through the resurrection. And then number, number four, he's doing it for a glorious purpose. He's doing it for a glorious purpose. And we know that that purpose is the glory of God and the good of His people. Now that's the big picture. That's a simple overview of the passage. It moves you from verse 20 to verse 28. It moves you from the resurrection of Christ to the very end of history. But to be honest with you, this is basically Discipleship 101. This is Resurrection 101. This is the simple overview. You may be thinking, oh my, you mean what we've been talking about is the simple stuff? Yes, it is. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews 6, 1 through 3. Hebrews 6, 1 through 3. And I want you to see this very important passage. Sometimes, you know, we think the basics are John 3, 16. As long as I know the gospel, that's the basics. But we sometimes forget that the gospel message involves resurrection and judgment. Even though we don't often share that when we witness, that's actually part of the gospel, and it's part of the basics. Look at Hebrews 6, 1 through 3. It says, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ. Elementary means the basic things. Remember when you went to preschool or you went to kindergarten and they had the ABCs around the, around the, around the top of the building? They don't do that now because everything's on computer, but you used to have it around the, the building in 1 to 10. And if you could get your kids to say the ABCs and if they could count to 10 and the higher they could count, the further you thought they were ahead on making success. Why? Because if you get those building blocks, then you've got it made. Well, here's the building blocks of the faith. Notice, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings or baptisms and laying on of hands, and notice, and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. He's saying, look, these are the basics. So what I'm giving you, it's kind of the basics. It's, it's discipleship 101. So let me make three observations. I, I have them written there in your notes. Three observations from this passage. And the first is this. 
A lot of what we think is complex and deep doctrine and heavy theology, what we would call meat, in this passage is really Discipleship 101. It's the elementary things. It's the milk of the Word. Okay? Second observation. One reason more difficult doctrines, which is called meat in this passage, are not taught and not understood and not wanted is due to a lack of maturity. Being babes in Christ versus mature grown-ups. Well, how do I know if I'm mature? Well, according to Hebrews 5, maturity, solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. In other words, the way you mature in Christ is not gaining more knowledge about God, it's being more obedient to God. It's taking what you're learning here and what you're learning upstairs and what your kids are learning and taking what you learn of God's truth and going out to even today, but tomorrow and the rest of this week and saying, well, that's wrong and that's right according to God's word. This is what I need to obey and this is what I need to not obey. And the reason we don't understand the greater truths of Scripture is not because of our intellect. It's an issue of the heart. We don't hunger after God in order to obey Him. We're not hungry to know His Word, to do His Word. So that's the idea there. One of the reasons more difficult doctrines are not taught or understood or wanted or desired is due to a lack of maturity. The bottom line is this. When you haven't applied what you already know, you don't desire to know more. Does that make sense? Why no more when I'm not... I mean, here's the thing. What do you say to your kids when they want new toys? What do you say? You're not using the ones you got. Why do we get more of this when you're not doing that? And that's exactly the way it is with the Word of God. Secondly, another reason more difficult doctrines are not taught, not understood, or not wanted is due to a lack of time. He says, I'll do this if time permits. It takes time to lay out the meat of God's Word. And the attention span of immature children is short, and that of adults is supposed to be longer. Okay? I remember when Amber was... And by the way, basically all these principles I'm teaching you all relate to mothers, don't you? I mean, you can, your mothers can get this better than anyone perhaps today. Right? Younger kids, what's the attention span? Non-existent, Right? Older they get, we hope, we pray that it will get better. Amber was just a little baby, and she was all movement and activity. She would lay, how old was she? Going about three, laying on the ground, and she'd do the airplane. I mean, she couldn't just lay there. I mean, she did this. she just arch her back and wave her hands, and it was just nonstop emotion. Until one day, I mean, I was convinced. I mean, I was, you know, we're going to have to research ADD. We've got issues here. This kid is never going to stop. And then one day, she sat, sat still for a whopping, I think, what, five minutes to watch Barney. Barney, you know, he's magical. And this was such an amazing miracle that uh, Gwen had to call my mom uh, and tell her that she's actually sitting, whose reaction was, I can't believe it. Okay? Attention span. I don't want to sit for the deep things of God. I don't, I, I, I've got things to do. I've got, I got a status update to check. I've got things and places to go. Sometimes, though, a lack of time has to do with circumstances beyond the teacher or the learner's control. Well, 
This we will do, he says, if God permits. Well, hopefully God's permitting this morning, but I still will say, if God permits, if time permits. So, here's what I want to do. I want to take you a little deeper into the orders of the resurrection. I want to take you into the view of the end times that we as a church teach. And I want to show you three options. And hopefully you'll see and learn and grow. If this is new to you this morning, then realize it's new and just take it in and learn something. Amen? It's all right to be confused as long as you're paying attention and learning. If this is familiar to you, then think about it a little deeply, a little more deeply, and seek to apply it more than anything. Uh, in time things are always super popular when times when when the world goes crazy, everybody wants to study Revelation. And yet right now in, in America anyway, end time things are not really that popular. I call it agnosticism. Uh, what is an agnostic? It's some it's somebody that says there there might be a God, but we can't know him. Well there's a lot of agnostics when it comes to the end times, and here's what they say. We know Jesus is coming, but we can't really know much about it. And anybody that thinks they know about it, well, they ought to be suspicious. Because really, nobody knows. And so let's just not worry about those things. Let's not think about those things. Are you kidding me? That's the end of all history. Okay, so we need to think through these things. We need to do it in a humble way. Nobody's got a corner on all this. Nobody understands it at all. I've been struggling with this for these last three weeks, just coming back to some things that I've always been taught, checking it with Scripture, comparing Scripture with Scripture. But at the end of the day, God wants us to know about the end of the world. So let's take a, let's take a look at this. And uh, if you want more help with this or you want to study further on this, I can certainly help you with that. Well, let's look at three different views of how rising up will get us to the end that God intends. How will resurrection get us to the end that God intends? There's three views. View number one, only one bodily resurrection in the future of the saved and the unsaved at the same time. Now... If you don't understand anything else I'm going to be saying for the rest of this lesson, then just look at these charts and try to see what the, the, the basic picture. So this is called amillennialism. You're like, I really didn't need to know that today. And I realize that. And it means that Christ came, he rose, and the end of history means believers are going to rise and unbelievers are going to rise and we're going to go into the new creation. It's just real simple. It's real simple. Real easy to understand. And sometimes we think simple is good and must be right because I can understand it. Anything I can understand must be wrong. Well, that's not good thinking when you come to the Trinity. The Trinity is right and true, yet I don't understand it and it's complex to think through and yet it's right. Okay, so, but that's the advantage of this. One bodily resurrection in, in the future. So look in your notes. Christ, the first fruits, and then one general resurrection of the saved and the unsaved at his second coming. If you look in your notes, I've got a red number one. And so you have Christ, the cross there, he raises, he's the first fruits. And then at the end, you have one general resurrection. Believers and unbelievers all at one time. And it's called millennialism because after Christ returns, there's no literal physical kingdom. 
So when Christ returns, ah, ah means no, no millennium. It's just this resurrection of everybody. The saved go into, uh, are blessed and, and go into eternal life. And the unsaved go into eternal damnation. New creation. All right? Now, the way God's going to fulfill the ultimate goal of history, according to this view, it's very simple to teach. It's very simple to understand. It's very easy to explain. And in our day, that makes it popular. And there's just one coming of Christ. He comes back. Okay? He comes back. There's, well, you know, there's this first coming, but there's just one coming of Christ. There's one time when everybody's going to be resurrected, and boom, you go into the new creation. So, let me kind of play this out just a little bit. Here's how they would explain that chart. So, look at that chart, and as we go through it, let me just explain a little bit. First of all, Jesus came the first time. Jesus came the first time and did what Israel had failed to do. He lived a perfect life. As God's son, he died a sacrificial death as the spotless lamb of God. He rose from dead and he was worthy to rule over all things as the son of God and the son of David. Israel had failed God. Jesus came as the perfect Jew, the perfect man, and he did what Israel failed to do. And therefore, because he was obedient, everything that was promised to Israel is fulfilled in Jesus spiritually. So everything that God promised to Israel and everything that Israel failed to do, Christ did, and therefore He gets all the promises of Israel and everything's fulfilled in Him spiritually. And sortly, sort of, you say, yeah, but what about all these physical promises about land and Isaiah has all sorts of chapters about the new, well, yeah, that kind of gets, that kind of gets fulfilled here. But the big thing is Christ. Christ has come. And everything's being spiritually fulfilled in Him. The church replaces Israel. In fact, in this view, there's a confusion between church and Israel throughout the whole Bible. In other words, Israel is the church in the Old Testament, and the church is Israel in the New Testament. It's just one big people of God. Israel blew it. Now, Jesus is the ultimate thing. He'll resurrect all believers, Old and New Testament, so there's no difference between the church and Israel. All believers will be resurrected. And then he will resurrect, and, 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 and this is probably the big thing that some of us are not used to. There is a rapture taught in Bible, right? First comes the resurrection, and then all believers that are alive when Christ comes back, which would be here, are raptured up, caught in the air, translated, Conform to His image. How do you get living people into a glorified body? That's what the rapture does. But what they teach is that the church is raptured, meets Christ halfway in the air, gets transformed, and then comes right back with Him. So basically, we get caught up in the air just to be transformed and then come back with Him. Now, that kind of sounds weird to us. Except that in Paul's day, in the day of Rome, there was this practice that when a Roman dignitary or when a king or a governor or a man of authority would visit a city, you would know he was coming and it would be announced that he's outside our city limits. He's coming and the whole town would then gather and go out to the city limits, meet him on the road, welcome him, and then proceed to 
to uh, usher him back into the city. So this idea, uh, you know, it sounds weird to us. I'll just wait till you come down here. You, you, right? You know, that's American. You know, that seems like a lot of effort. If you're, if we're all going to come back here, I'll just wait until you come here. But that wasn't the way it was then. So you would go out. So it makes sense. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lord is coming and his people go up to greet him and to welcome him back to his kingdom. Okay, so there's a legitimate understanding of that. There's an understanding of that. But that's how all that's going to take place, okay, in this understanding. Now, the point is, it's amillennial because there's no kingdom. He's just going to kind of come and subject everything, and it's all going to happen in this short little period of time, and then you go right into the new creation. Now, what's wrong with this? Or let's, you know, what's good about it? What's wrong with it? Well, it, it, it seems to fit with what Jesus and the Old Testament taught. When you look at resurrections in the Old Testament, and when you look at what Jesus taught about the, re, the future resurrection, they both teach there's a resurrection of believers, and there's a re, resurrection of unbelievers, and that's all they say. They don't say there's any time in between them. They don't really emphasize that. They just say there's a re, resurrection of the just and the unjust. You want to be a part of the just. So this fits that, okay? That kind of makes sense. The only problem is we got more Bible than just the Old Testament and the Gospels. We got to fit all the Bible into this, and we've got to compare Scripture with Scripture. Also, at first glance, this seems to fit with 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 28. Because basically in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 28, he says, here's how the resurrections are going to happen. First Christ, and then... Those who are in Christ at His coming. Okay? And, okay, there you go. That fits. It's not complex. It's simple. But, look, the thing that kind of has freaked me out about 1 Corinthians 20 through 28 is Paul never literally, explicitly mentions the resurrection of unbelievers. Did you notice that? He says death is conquered, which means Everyone, it, it, he implies the resurrection of the dead or of the unbelieving when he says that death will be conquered. Well, how can death be conquered if people remain dead? They can't. Are, are, am I making sense here? And you know what's even more wild? That it, Paul never mentions the resurrection of unbelievers in any of his epistles. In fact, we wouldn't know that he believed in the resurrection of the unbeliever if we didn't have the book of Acts where Luke says in, Luke, in Acts 24, 15 that he preached the resurrection of the believer and the unbeliever. So what's that tell us about 1 Corinthians 15, 20? Not everything that Paul believed or taught is in this passage. His focus is merely on believers. Now... So right now you're kind of thinking, well, this, this, this makes sense. But we have a critical passage. Turn to Revelation 20. You've got to compare Scripture with Scripture. 1 Corinthians 15 is not the only passage. 1 Corinthians 20, or, uh, Revelation 20, verses 1 through 15. Now, everything else we're going to teach today is based on this passage. Here's Revelation and let me give you where we are in the book of Revelation. In Revelation, Revelation 19, you've got Jesus coming back. And in Revelation 20, you have something 
that all millennials don't like. You have a thousand-year kingdom reign of Christ with a resurrection before and a resurrection after. And this has to be dealt with because it's in Scripture. Okay, so let's look at Revelation 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding, this is all after Christ has returned in Revelation 19, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. A thousand years is mentioned six times in this passage. Six times. And here's what it says. And he threw him into the abyss. He shut it. He sealed it over him. Satan's not getting out. So that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones and and they sat on them. Doesn't tell us who they are. I think that's the church. And judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image. In other words, those who had martyred, who were martyred during the great tribulation, the seven year tribulation that covers Revelation 6 through 18. And it says, and had not received the mark on their forehead or on their hand, and they came to life. There's the resurrection. And they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So, tribulation saints are going to resurrect and reign with Christ for a thousand years. This sounds like 1 Corinthians 15. It doesn't sound like the amillennial position. So, let's keep reading. The rest of the dead... Do not come to life until the thousand years are completed. This is the first resurrection. The rest of the dead don't come to life until the end of the resurrection. And just to make sure we understand that, look at verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these the second death have no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ. And here it is again. They will reign with Him for a thousand years. So, these guys are... i got all my pins everywhere. These guys are blessed and holy. These guys are not blessed, not holy, and they suffer the second death which if you read the rest of the chapter, is the lake of fire. Death meaning eternal separation. They've died once, but now they have eternal, eternal death. So there you go. Now, well, let's keep reading. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison, and he will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, don't worry about that. To gather them together for war, the number of them is like the sand of the sea, and they camp on the broad plain of the earth, surrounding the camp of the saints in the beloved city, Jerusalem, and fire down from heaven, and, and fire came down from heaven and destroyed uh, and destroyed, devoured them. And the devil who deceived them is thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. 
and I saw the dead and the great and the small standing before the throne. And the books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Why? Because they didn't accept Christ's work for them. They didn't accept the gospel. Therefore, they are judged on the basis of what they did. Most people think, I'm going to be judged on my good, you know, my good deeds and my bad deeds. And they're exactly right. Where people get deceived is they think my good deeds are going to outweigh my bad deeds because I'm better than her and I'm better than him and I know a preacher that was a lousy preacher and I know some Christians that are lousy Christians so I'm okay and the problem is the standard is not other people the standard is the righteousness of God and the perfection of Jesus Christ we anybody who comes to this judgment will fail And so it says, and the sea gave up their dead. You see, there's the resurrection of unbelievers, but they're still called dead. Why? Because there's still death is separation from God. Listen, when you die without Christ, first of all, when you die without Christ, you're already you already been spiritually dead. And then when you rise, you're still dead because you're still without Christ. I mean, this is tragic stuff when you read these passages. I'm going to be resurrected. No, this is not good. You now have a body that can withstand eternal fire for all of eternity. Wow. And so it happens that then death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Do you see death and Hades? The last enemy is defeated. And that comes at the end of this thousand-year kingdom. Now, here's... And I can't go into this, but... Here's the, all of I just read and all, of I taught, all that I just shared with you, in the amillennial position, they have no kingdom. So you say, well, what do they do with this? Well, they spiritualize it and they push it all back into this time period. And I'm probably getting deeper than what I ought to, but it just, you got to get it. Because this is the popular view right now. This is the popular view. Many of you as are reading authors that hold to this view of the end times. And you need to understand who, what they believe and what you believe. And while we can benefit from these authors, we do not, in my opinion want to benefit in this area. Because this is a physical resurrection, this is a physical resurrection, separated by a thousand years. So how do they get away with this? In your kingdom, and they say, it's going on right now. But there's a major problem with this view. Satan is supposed to be bound in a prison that's locked up, and he can't get out. Thinking Satan's locked up right now? Not deceiving the nations? Are you kidding me? And what do you do with this physical? If they're all resurrected at one time, so they spiritualize this resurrection. And they say, that's being raised in your heart when you accept the gospel. But the problem is, 
This resurrection, they say, is physical. So now in a space of one verse, if you look in there, this is spiritual. This is not, this is, this is spiritualized. It, it's just getting born again. This is a real resurrection, but I don't want to be a part of this resurrection. They spiritualize, listen, if you spiritualize this number, that, do you know Revelation is full of numbers? Well, what are you going to do with the seven-year tribulation? What are you going to do with the first three and a half years that are good and the second three and a half years that are bad? You, suddenly, all this is spiritualized. And basically what happens is we're in the tribulation now and we're in the kingdom now and everything's just spiritual and Jesus is reigning and Satan is bound and it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense with the text and it doesn't make sense with your experience. When you put Satan in an abyss and you lock it, shut it, and seal it, and you call it a prison, that means he's just not... He, he, he's, he's bound. Now, that will happen during the glorious kingdom of, of, of Christ on earth. That makes sense here. Christ is reigning, Satan is bound, and the world is going to fulfill as much as it can in a fallen state all that God intended for it. And it's just going to be a great and glorious thing. Then Satan will be unleashed at the set, you know at the end. Okay, I must move on now. I hope you can see that this doesn't really make sense. What this view does also is there's no literal fulfillment for Israel of all the promises God made to them. There's no literal fulfillment. It's all spiritualized and it's all taken over by the church. But for that reason. One general resurrection doesn't seem likely. It started with a man named Augustine. It's the major view of the Roman Catholic Church. The reformers came out of the Roman Catholic Church. And so that's why they, they're attracted to that. And that's why they hold to it. So what's the second view? View number two, two bodily resurrections. It's real easy. View one, one bodily resurrection. View two, how many resurrections, Juanita? Two. And what do you think view three is going to have? Probably three. You got it. You got it. There you go. Two bodily resurrections in the, fir- in the future. First of all the saved, and then later of all the unsaved. So here's what you got written. You look at the red numbers on your chart. First resurrection is of all believers, New Testament and Old Testament. You might want to write that under that first resurrection. That first number one. All believers, old and new. And then number two, all unbelievers. So here's what you got. What do you got written in your notes? Christ, the first fruits, and then two resurrections. All the saved before the millennial kingdom. And millennial means a thousand. That's just how theolo, you know, millennial means a thousand. And so millennial kingdom, you're always saying a thousand year kingdom. And then all the unsaved after the millennial kingdom. This is called premillennialism. Millennial meaning kingdom, pre-kingdom. Why? Because Christ returns before there is a literal physical kingdom of a thousand years. So, well, this is nasty, isn't it? Um, so here's what you got with, whoo, I shouldn't have done that, with this view. Is Christ comes back. Christ comes back, and then you have this thousand-year kingdom, okay? Does that make sense? At least one person say yes. All right. I'll teach to one. Does that make sense? So he comes back, 
And all of this takes place here and here, and it's called premillennialism because he comes before this thousand-year literal kingdom. Now, I'm not going to go back and teach. I already kind of taught that in showing the errors of amillennialism. So there you go. The thing you want to understand about premillennialism is the same thing happens here at the second coming. So this is the second coming. Same thing happens here on the rapture. The church goes up, gets transformed, and comes down at the same time that Christ came down. And everybody gets, all believers get resurrected, both Old Testament and New Testament, all at the same time. Now, why is that? Because in this view, like the other view, the church replaces Israel. Christ came. He did what Israel did not do. He fulfills all Israel's promises, and all of Israel's promises are fulfilled in Christ, except there is a thousand-year literal kingdom. There's a new creation, but it's not really a Jewish kingdom. It's not for Israel. It's, 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 it's just... It just is. Old Israel and church are all together. Okay? And they get resurrected together. They're the people of God. They enter into the kingdom. Um... Another thing you want to understand about this particular view is they don't take a thousand literally. It's, some do, but many just say a thousand means a very long time. Christ will reign on the earth. How long? A thousand years? Well, it's symbolic, a very long time. But he will reign on the earth. So it's an improvement on Amil. And if you notice on the chart that I gave you, there's just kind of this line here, Great Tribulation. That, too, is kind of not literally seven years. Basically, we're in the Great Tribulation now, but it will get worse. Okay? Are you with me? So the numbers, not so literal, but what they represent is very real. Are you with me? All right. Um, the good thing about this view, it takes literal, uh, the fact that there is a kingdom... It takes literal that Satan is bound here and not here. It takes this resurrection as a real bodily resurrection, and this as a real bodily resurrection. This is believers, but both old and new, and this is unbelievers. So, amillennial, I don't think it holds up to Scripture or reality. Premillennial, I think it's very consistent with Revelation 20. Okay? Obviously, we're doing an overview, and I can't get into all of this deeply. Um, okay, so what's the weaknesses of this view? First of all, they equate the church with Israel, and there's not a literal fulfillment of all of Israel's promises, so that's one weakness. Second weakness, these numbers become kind of fuzzy. And then number three... There's passages in the, Old, in the New Testament that says the church will be saved from the wrath of God at the end. Well, in this view, the church goes through all of the great tribulation, which is kind of all of life. It just gets steadily worse. And we, uh, we, we persevere, we endure the wrath of God, but we're not kept from it. The only problem is there's two passages, and you might want to write these down. 1 Thessalonians 5.9. 1 Thessalonians 5.9, Paul says, For God has not destined us, the church, for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, 
And then in Revelation 3.10, Revelation 3.10, Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. In other words, you're my church. You're destined for salvation, not God's wrath. So before I pour out my wrath, I'm going to take up my church. So, that leaves us to the third view. And the third view is this. Three resurrections. One for the church, then Israel and tribulation martyrs, and finally the unsaved. Alright? Now, this is the most complex. People don't like complex. This is not the popular view. Now, about a hundred years ago, this view, which is called dispensational premillennialism, was the popular view. In fact, if you were a Christian and you were taught any of the Bible, you would be taught this Bible. How many of you have ever had a Schofield reference Bible? If you've had a Schofield reference Bible, that's what's taught in the Schofield. It was just the dominant view. It's no longer the dominant view. With the resurgence of Reformed theology... The, the dominant view is amillennialism or that premillennialism. But let's take a look at this. Just because something's complex doesn't mean it's not right. There's three resurrections. So look at uh, the red number one is just the church. Just the church. New Testament believers. The resurrection number two at his second coming is just Israel and anybody who has died in the tribulation. And then number three is just unbelievers, all unbelievers, no matter who you are. And so you can read about that. Number one, here's what I want you to see. Christ the first fruits, and then three bodily resurrections. All the church who are in Christ before this seven-year tribulation. There's, there's a seven-year tribulation. So... God is going to resurrect the church and rapture the church. And see, in this view, the rapture and the return are separated by seven years. So the church is resurrected, but it's also raptured, transformed, and doesn't come back with Christ until after the seven-year tribulation. So that's the difference. Rapture and, re rapture and return are separated by seven years. This is called dispensation, oh, and then all believing Israel and any martyrs that have died will be resurrected to enter into the kingdom, which is the fulfillment of all God's promises to Israel. And then after that, after the kingdom, all the saved. Now, here's what you want to see about this view. It's called dispensational premillennialism because Christ returns before the literal kingdom. So... It takes premillennialism and says, yeah, that's right, but what it misses is these numbers are literal and the rapture and the resurrection of the church happens before the resurrection and the fulfillment of Israel's kingdom promises. Okay? Happy Mother's Day. So, but he also comes, and read the rest of number two. This is dispensational premillennialism because Christ returns before there is a literal physical kingdom for a thousand years on earth, as predicted in Revelation 21 through 15. But he also comes to rapture the church, rapture the church before the great tribulation. So, 
What are the distinctives here? Here's the distinctives. The reason it's called dispensational is God fulfills His plan according to different ordering of His household, different dispensations. Once Israel rejected their Messiah, Christ forms the church, Jew and Gentile, in one body by the giving of... We're we're not Israel, we're the church. Israel rejected Christ. When you receive Christ, you become part of the church, not a part of Israel. So that's the big distinction. It takes these numbers literally. There is a seven-year great tribulation. There is a thousand-year kingdom. But what happens is once the church is raptured, God now pours out His wrath on the earth, and He does it in order to save Israel as a nation. And... Israel's salvation comes as a nation. Individual Jews can be saved at any time. Make sense? And they become part of the church. The Apostle Paul, the twelve disciples. But the nation, it says, they will see the one whom they had pierced, the one that they had rejected. When he comes back, because the Antichrist is going to have the nation on the ground, and the, the knife is going to be at the throat of the nation... Antichrist is about to destroy Israel. And if you destroy Israel, you destroy the promises of God. If you destroy Israel, and if this kingdom doesn't come about, and if God's promises don't get fulfilled for Israel, then God's a liar, and your salvation and your salvation is in question. And so Satan, through the Antichrist and the false prophet, is going to have Israel on their knees. the night. Just the picture of ISIS is exactly the picture of what's going to happen at the end of the tribulation. They are about to behead that nation. And Christ comes back, and we come back with Him, because we're glorified, and we come down, and they look up and they say, Whoa, we made a tragic mistake! Jesus of Nazareth is our Messiah! Save us! Save us! Save us! And He comes down, and He kicks some demonic booty, And he saves Israel, and he establishes his kingdom, and he says, Satan, you go down here for a thousand years. I'm going to clean up this mess for a thousand years. Subject all power, all authority, all things. And the final enemy is going to be death when the unsaved are resurrected and cast into the lake of fire. Make sense? Now, let me end with this. Rising up is going to get us to the end that God intends. And let me end with this. Regardless of which view is right, regardless of which view you hold, okay, our church teaches the last view, uh, our leadership is expected to teach and affirm that. You can be part of this church even if you, you know, you're growing in this. I get all that. But here's the point. Regardless of which view, are you ready? Because he's coming back. He's coming back. And if he's and guess what? In all three of these views, things get worse before he comes. See, some people think that I like that rapture view because you go up before it gets bad. Well, let me just wake you up to that. 
Try to tell that to people, Christians that have been beheaded by ISIS. Try to tell that to the majority of Christians in this world who have suffered martyrdom for the faith. Our day is coming. Just because we're going to escape God's wrath in the seven-year tribulation doesn't mean that it might be like hell on earth before we come. So are you ready? I hope that you know Jesus Christ this morning. I hope you are born again, that God is your father. You may not know your mother. You may not know your father, but you can know the father that counts this morning. And you can be ready and long and love his appearing. And Christian, are you ready to go face to face and toe to toe with your living Lord as he judges whether your life has been a spiritual waste? You won't be judged for your salvation but we will have to each give an accounting before our Lord for how we have spent our life. It's called the judgment seat of Christ, and it's going to happen sometime in this time during while we're in heaven. And He's going to weigh out what we've done with our lives, and He's going to test it by fire, and the only thing that endures is that which is done for eternity and for Him. Eschatology is not something you don't want to know about. But the most important thing is to know Christ. And then be ready, because He can come at any moment. Let's pray. Father, uh, I thank You for the grace to teach this lesson. This is not easy stuff. And yet, Lord, we want to be mature, because we obey Your truth. We want to be able to understand these things. And we want to live them out. And so I pray that You would bless us for having taught this, but more so for believing it and then living like we believe it. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.